This is Thinking About OBGYN with your hosts, Antonia Roberts and Howard Harrell. Antonia? Howard? What are we thinking about on today's episode? Well, just a random assortment of various interesting things from some of the recent journal editions. Like a smorgasbord again? Yeah, yeah. Potpourri? Yeah, hodgepodge, whatever you want to call it. All right. All right. That sounds good. Yeah, okay. But, of course, first, what's a thing that we do for no reason? Well, how about routine cord blood gases at the time of delivery? Okay, so... You mean like collecting blood gases from the umbilical artery and vein after every single delivery, no matter how well or how poorly it went? Yeah, a lot of people do that. Okay, so well, tell us a little more. Well, I certainly have seen a lot of folks who will get them routinely at every delivery, and I think that's really hard to justify for any reason, maybe outside of a research project or something like that where you're collecting them to do studies on this. But doing that routinely or doing them at all really doesn't serve any predictive value in terms of predicting poor negative neonatal outcomes or helping us manage the immediate need for resuscitation that the newborn might have. But I think some of us have grown accustomed to getting them maybe just for medical legal protection reasons, too. But we really should be asking if they're ever indicated, even in select cases, I think. Well, Before you go any further with this, you probably need to explain what you mean by saying they don't serve any predictive value for neonatal outcomes, because I think everybody listening probably has been taught the importance of cord blood gases and that a pH below 7 is really bad, and it indicates that the fetus was probably in severe distress at the time of delivery and then any pH above 7 and really higher, like 7.2, is much more reassuring. So you'll probably have to give us some evidence here for such a bold claim. Well, that's fair. Of course, we've been talking over the last year or so in some of these episodes about a lot of recent studies that have shown that the correlations between neonatal outcomes and the supposed predictors of outcomes, including the fetal tracing itself or umbilical cord blood gases or APGAR scores even, they're not nearly as robust as we, I think, once thought they were. Well, there was a study that relates to this in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the MFM edition that they do from 2019, where they collected umbilical cord gas studies on 3001 cesarean deliveries of non-laboring, presumably healthy pregnancies. So these were elective non-laboring sections. They divided the pHs in those pregnancies, up those deliveries up into five categories, representing ranges from normal to some degree of abnormality, including category E, which was the pH of less than seven and a basic cess less than or equal to negative 12. And that's that category you alluded to that we've all been taught is very bad. They looked at all sorts of adverse neonatal outcomes, and they just simply found no correlation at all between abnormal umbilical cord gas studies and a composite of these adverse neonatal outcomes, regardless of which of the five definitions, including the most extreme one, the definitions of abnormal gases that they used. And most of these newborns that had abnormal outcomes still had normal gases. Yeah, so actually, I looked at that study too, and in the five categories, it was actually only of abnormal gases. So they were trying to give a range of like 
super abnormal and then mildly abnormal. And in that study, only like slightly less than 3% of all the infants had any even mild abnormality. So their sort of mildest category A in this study was a pH of 7.15 or less. And that was it, plus or minus a normal base success. But so that said, less than 3% of of the infants had even a mild abnormality, but then- 2.6%. Yeah, yeah. And 14% of all the babies had an adverse clinical outcome. So yeah, as you said, that leaves over 11% that had normal gases, but still had a bad clinical outcome. And of the category E that you said, that which was- the, the lowest pH and a high base excess, that was only 0.1% of the babies. So so four babies had that. And their conclusion was that there was a high specificity for ha- for an abnormal gas predicting a, a abnormal clinical outcome, but the sensitivity was very low from zero to 2%. <laughs> so which makes it a really bad screen. Yeah, test. very just worthless. And so the and the outcomes it was it was a composite, but then they did also break it down. And so these included low 5-minute apgars and and I like sepsis, necrotizing enterocolitis, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, seizures, respiratory depression, blood transfusion, phototherapy. So a really long list. And actually there were no cases of the HIE, the hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, even in the ones with the the very low pH. And then actually, and there were no deaths either, thankfully. So I don't know, I think some of those outcomes could feasibly be traced to other things than acute intrapartum events or any kind of acidemia, whether acute or not acute, like blood incompatibility, diabetes, you know, those kids very frequently will need phototherapy. So really the only strong association of all the various outcomes with abnormal cord gases was a low five-minute APGAR. That was definitely a lot more frequent with the low pHs. So, you know, and that's not really a, I don't know that I would even call that an outcome in and of itself. It's a measurement. It may or may not indicate poor long-term outcomes, yeah. which is what we really care about. Yeah. It more indicates need for resuscitation. Yeah. And they did talk about this in the study, too, that these all had a very low pretest probability. Like, they came in unlabored, unstressed. They were scheduled sections. I don't know if any of them happened to have, like, a abnormal non-stress test on admission or you know, unexpected difficulties during the delivery, like maybe the spinal failed, they had to go under general and do, you know, a rapid cesarean, get through adhesions, difficult breech extraction, who, I don't know, that could have been part of it. But at least for the very routine deliveries that had no issues, I think with having that low pretest probability, and then still getting an abnormal gas, you'd probably would have to interpret that differently than you would for someone, say, with a CAT3 tracing that has a high pretest probability of an abnormal outcome. And also, I don't know what their rate of lab error was. This was such an infrequent outcome that may, maybe that, you know, maybe there could have been a lab error too. 
Yeah, that's right. And that could have huge medical legal implications. We don't really know how many times these lab error or these abnormal gases are the result of just a lab error, some sort of either collection error or a lab error itself resulting in what looks like a bad gas that should have been normal. So that could have its own medical legal implications. But everything that you said just really means that doing the blood gases makes it a really horrible screening test. By nature, something with such a low sensitivity is not going to be good for a screening test. So if you're getting them routinely at the time of every delivery, I think though, then you're arguing that it would be a good screening test. And it certainly is not that. But I, I think that Logic also is that if you do see an abnormally low pH that you weren't expecting, then maybe that could still help identify a newborn at risk for some adverse outcome and maybe help intervene earlier than they otherwise would have. Yeah, I don't know that the actual newborn, immediate newborn care is going to be modified by these gases. Just you think about the resuscitation that's going on and seeing the time. So so I think that's right, that it does have that ability. That, but the rate of abnormal gases is, again, very low, and some of them might be false positives. But I think, more importantly, you won't need an abnormal gas at the time of delivery to help you identify this newborn that you're worried about for having you know developmental complications or neurodevelopmental problems due to intrapartum events. It'll be very obvious and it'll be reflected by a need for neonatal resuscitation. I mean, I think that's the good point about it corresponding to the five-minute APGAR. The five-minute APGAR will be back before the gas is. And the five-minute APGAR will tell you that you potentially have an issue here. You'll know that this baby is potentially in trouble probably within the first minute. But certainly if the five-minute APGAR is depressed, then that's probably the fetus that you could make the same predictive statements for that you might if you had a category D or E gas. Well, I think this brings up that medical legal question and the kind of the consideration that's always in the back of our minds is what about the baby that does well initially and then maybe at 30 minutes of life or, you know, sometime beyond five minutes then develops respiratory distress or sepsis or something else. I think a lot of the obstetricians that are ordering these tests are doing it because they believe it might help them in that kind of situation to show that however the delivery went, the gas was fine. So whatever problem that happened after that should not be attributed to the delivery process or the delivery provider. Yeah, definitely. I think that you've hit on what a lot of people are thinking or the thought process there. And for this topic, we need to refer to the ACOG document on neonatal encephalopathy, which I'll put a link to. And really, anybody practicing obstetrics should have read and should be familiar with. And it's now in its second edition. I think it was reaffirmed in 2019, but written many years ago originally. And this document, it does try to use some objective criteria to try to delineate what findings in a newborn are consistent or are inconsistent with suggesting that an acute intrapartum event took place that resulted in the adverse complications that we're seeing. So one takeaway that people had developed from this when it was first published is what we were talking about before, that an APGAR score at five minutes of seven or greater is unlikely to be consistent with an intrapartum event. And that's what it says. As well as a pH greater than 7.2 is inconsistent with an intrapartum event. And a pH of less than seven is said to increase the probability of an intrapartum hypoxic component. But unfortunately, it creates this big gray zone where just tons of babies lie between 7 and 7.2 and emphasizes that there is a continuum of risk. 
So most babies who have a pH of less than seven at birth are still going to be normal and healthy, you know, in matter of fact. And some with pHs greater than 7.2, obviously, are going to be problematic, but hopefully not blamed. uh, Hopefully that's not blamed on an intrapartum event. They discuss other criteria as well, such as abnormal brain scans and, of course, multi-system organ failure. You know, if the theory is that the baby suffered an acute hypoxic event, you should see multi-system organ failure if you're also seeing brain damage as a result of that. So, but OBs have learned, I think, after that paper was published to focus on that five-minute APGAR of something less than seven and a pH of less than 7.0. And so they believe if they can get either of those things or both of those things, that that could help them feel good medical legally. Okay, so you're, I think you're suggesting that it could also hurt them as at least as much as it might help them because if there's an abnormal gas that's discovered maybe more like incidentally or surprisingly after a routine normal delivery. Or maybe one of those lab errors we were talking about. Yeah, or maybe a lab error and then that baby happens to have cerebral palsy from another cause like like intrapartum infection or, you know, some other event that occurred before they even presented. Intrapartum stroke. Yeah, like a yeah, exactly. Then there'd be a false correlation between that abnormal outcome and that gas that was abnormal. And then that would be attributed to, well, there was a low pH, there was this outcome, so there must have been something that happened at birth, and then that would lead to a successful lawsuit against the OB due to this probably coincidental, unrelated gas. Yeah, as we talked about earlier in when discussing some other new literature, you know, we have a long legacy, unfortunately, in OBGYN in the last few decades of blaming things like cerebral palsy on intrapartum events that are clearly related to events that happened prior to the birthing process itself. And so the gases could confuse this. So I think that's exactly right. At the same time, though, if you deliver a baby who had clearly no intrapartum event, the tracing's been fine, there was no sentinel event is really the term we should use, and who had was born, though, with neonatal depression, needed resuscitation, and they had a five-minute APGAR of less than seven, you know, five-minute APGAR six, five, four, three, something like that. And then you get a gas and you find a pH of greater than seven, or hopefully maybe even greater than 7.2, then yeah, that clearly could and should exonerate you. It may give you the objective evidence you need to go to the family and the patient and say, look, we did this test and it showed that whatever's going on with the baby was not due to the events that led up to labor. And it predates the labor delivery process. And that in itself, by being able to share that with a family and show them that this isn't your opinion, this is objective data, well, that may save you even an inquiry into a lawsuit, let alone actually in, a, you know, in the end losing a lawsuit in court. But I guess the flip side could also happen. But, I, but, it, but you know, if you have clearly a good labor and a good experience and a baby with some problems, then then a gas can certainly, I think it's more likely to clear things up than to hurt you. And I guess like you c- you don't have to decide right away to run a gas. Like you can get a segment and decide after the five-minute APGAR. So it seems like if there's a good five-minute APGAR, there's almost no benefit to getting the gas because the APGAR should tell you like they're there wasn't an intrapartum event. I know that the neonatal encephalopathy document says APGAR and gas, but... The, yeah, the problem, I agree with you. I think the problem with the APGAR is that a trial attorney will argue that it's subjective or that you inflated it. They'll suggest mm. even 
yeah. a conspiracy between you and the nurse to make it seven rather than five or something like that. But yeah, you can always get the gas and, and it does relate to things we've discussed about becoming a standard of care. So we want to do delayed cord clamping, particularly for a baby that may need mm. resuscitation is depressed. And But if you're going to save a segment, remember, like, it needs to be isolated between a couple of clamps. And mm-hmm. you've actually got, you know, 10, 20 minutes, actually longer than that, to draw an accurate gas from that. But if you don't have a segment saved and you decide, you know, you have one clamp on it and you're sitting there managing the third stage and you decide, you know, 10 minutes or something later to get a gas, that gas may be inaccurate. Yeah. So you probably shouldn't get that one. Yeah. And that's happened to me where I was like, oh, crap, I wish I had put a second clamp on there and isolated a segment. But I was thinking that that talks, that gets to what we discussed earlier about draining the placenta to as a third <laughs> yeah, stage advantage. Yeah. Well, you certainly can't do that if you're thinking you might want a gas later. Yeah. I suppose you can also draw a gas and then choose not to send it. Yeah. It is something at least to think about. If you're worried about it, don't drain the placenta, double clamp the, the a segment. So that you can isolate it and then make a decision. But yeah, for me, that's essentially what I'm doing. If I'm certainly not getting them routinely, and if there's a question about the five-minute APGAR, then that's when I'll selectively send them, which ends up, thankfully, being a very rare thing. Yeah, so you can double clamp the segment, cut the segment off immediately, and then drain the placenta. And then you're doing all the potential things. that Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so I think that at least that paper that you brought up doesn't really argue for routinely getting gases in situations where there was no concern beforehand for the fetal status. No sentinel event. Yeah, no sentinel event. Yeah, because there just wasn't a really good correlation between the abnormal gases and the outcomes. So, okay. So I guess I'll accept this argument and we'll just do selective gases. All right. Yeah. Sounds good to me. We're saving money. All right. So I think next you had mentioned you wanted to talk about marijuana. Is that right? I Wow. I wanted to talk <laughs> about marijuana. Wow. Okay. Well, actually, I think you are going to talk about marijuana. There's a new study about prenatal cannabis exposure. So I think this is more your topic. Oh, really? Well, let's just both talk about marijuana and make it both of our topics. So It's probably more fun together. Yeah. Well, okay. So there's this There's this NIH-funded study that was just published in JAMA Pediatrics. It looked at cannabis exposure after five or six weeks gestation, and they found that it was associated with attention, social, and behavioral problems that persisted at least into early adolescence, which they defined as 11 or 12 years old. So this is reportedly the largest study ever to be done on prenatal cannabis exposure. They looked at over 12,000 kids and followed them up to the age of 12. And this adds to previous data from the same group. They really, I think, have shown that this effect persists all the way into adolescence and probably beyond and, you know, shows some pretty, pretty convincing evidence of harm from the exposure, or at least some kind of association But I think we already knew that prenatal exposure to marijuana was potentially problematic, and we always have recommended against it. Yeah, I do think, though, that for some folks who seeing the praises and medical benefits of marijuana, our recommendations against it were viewed more as biased or, you know, 
socially conservatively driven or something like that rather than scientifically driven. So I think this does add to it and it's important. And also we can say specifically what the harms are and the degree of harm and to a greater degree of certainty and specificity than we could before. So at this point we have, yeah, plenty of evidence that pregnant women should not be consuming cannabis, probably in any form, smoking or edibles or anything else. And, you know, CBD is, is right there next to it. This study doesn't specifically talk about CBD, but we have other evidence there too. And that's important as a lot of first trimester pregnant women are actually using CBD and marijuana as treatment for nausea, vomiting a pregnancy and feel like it's beneficial and which I'm sure it is, but that it's harmless. So. The truth is, I think that marijuana it probably serves a greater health risk, at least to the developing fetus, than does smoking cigarettes during pregnancy. But I do think culturally right now, at least, we don't talk about marijuana through the same lens as we do smoking cigarettes. They noted in that report that the rate of marijuana use in pregnancy has been slowly increasing to as high as in their population 5.4% in 2019. But boy, I I think it's a lot higher, maybe at least in the patient population I see. It's I feel like it's more common than not that at least at the onset of pregnancy that marijuana will be an issue. That doesn't mean they continue smoking it, but but in terms of coming in with initial drug screen. So it's definitely become very normalized in our society in the last decade or so. And I don't think we've done a good job explaining to potential mothers, speaking from a societal perspective, about the risks of cannabis use during pregnancy. We finally have done that with tobacco and alcohol, and we've stigmatize tobacco and alcohol use during pregnancy, but I really don't think we've done that with marijuana. And I think it takes those sort of larger societal pressures and changes and stigmatizations to make a real dent on whether or not pregnant women choose to consume or smoke cannabis during pregnancy. The societal way we talk about it's more important than what I tell the patient is my point there. Yeah. And we do, along with that, we have all kinds of programs for smoking cessation and alcohol cessation and even medications. But I guess, I guess the treatments for marijuana use, if you even need treatments, I don't know. I think that probably has to catch up. Yeah. And it's also, that's a good point to keep in mind that 11 to 13% of frequent smokers of marijuana do develop an addiction-like syndrome. So I think we also Mm, just think it's not addictive, but for some women it is addictive and they'll need a treatment similar to those treatment programs you mentioned. Okay, well, let's switch over to another one of your favorite topics, which is diabetes. So so marijuana is not my favorite topic now, huh? Well, I guess I think everything is your favorite topic. Oh, so I got you. I see. That's a that's some kind of you're making fun of me. I see what's going on. Well, you said it, not me. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, we talked recently about diabetes in pregnancy and about the tighter criteria for diagnosing and how the, you know that doesn't improve outcomes. And then we were talking also about whether having tighter daily targets for treatment of diabetes could make some kind of difference in the outcomes, like the size of the baby or the C-section rates. And we were just talking and we surmised that the answer is probably no, but we know that a lot of people in practice are still trying to encourage tighter glucose limits, like going below, even below the standard targets in hopes that it'll improve some of these outcomes. But since we've done that episode, there has been a new publication that is looking at that question and I think helps answer it. And you've read this, so you can go ahead and tell us about that. Well, this paper was published September 8th in PLOS Medicine, which isn't the most respectable journal in all of medicine. But nevertheless, it was done in New Zealand and it's called the Target Trial. And it was designed to assess whether, as you said, tighter control 
compared with less tight control, reduced maternal and perinatal morbidities. So the less tight controls in the study are essentially the levels that I think most of us are using in the United States, meaning a fasting blood sugar of less than 95 or so, one hour postprandial is less than 140 or so, and two hour postprandial is less than 120 or so. And I say or so because they use different units in Australia, New Zealand. So they measure glucose in millimoles per liter and we measure it in milligrams per deciliter. So there's some rounding things because they tend to use even numbers. So they're four or five points off. But allowing for those conversion differences, essentially, they used our criteria for what they call the less tight control group. And then the tighter control group is basically just about 10 points lower on everything. So, you know, 85 or 90 and and 130 for one hour and 110 for two hours. And they had just over 1,100 women who had gestational diabetes. And they looked at all the things you might think of, like death and birth trauma and shoulder dystocia. And of course, they did fetal weights. They also did sizes and like links and things like that to just see if the biometry of these babies were different. Yeah. And tell us what they found. Well, they concluded that tighter glycemic targets did not reduce the risk for large gestational age infants, but that it might have reduced some other neonatal morbidities, though they concluded that it, if it did that, it did so at the expense of increased maternal morbidity. Well, that. That's a little interesting. That's not something that we were really predicting just talking about it. Maybe you can explain that a little more. And as I read it, they found no differences in the sizes of the babies, including birth weight or incidence of macrosomia or head circumference or really any of the individual measurements that you would think would have some kind of impact on birth trauma or late labor arrest or shoulder dystocia. So what, where did they find any difference in outcomes? Yeah. And unfortunately, I think that this study is a great, this would be a great journal club article. I think this is another example of where authors, they've done a study, it's a negative study, and then they really want to find something important, something statistically significant, something to talk about, something to get published with to make it a positive study. And they didn't quite find anything. So As you said, they found no statistical difference in rates of shoulder dystocia or outcomes like need for respiratory support, which we know has long been pegged to glycemic control, or admissions to the NICU, or rates of hypoglycemia, neonatal hypoglycemia, or hyperbilirubinemia, or the length of neonatal stays. Really, none of those things that we think of as something we'd like to affect. But they did find an increased risk, in their view, of serious maternal health outcomes in the tighter control group that they reported as statistically significant. And this was a composite score of a lot of rare events. And the truth is, the numbers of each of these rare events are just too small to draw any conclusions. And I don't think, in fact, that it was statistically significant. The biggest differences in the two groups was that the women with tighter control, they had more postpartum hemorrhage. That was basically where all of it was. But I think that's probably just an outlying random finding. I don't know how the fact that a woman's blood sugars were an average of 10 points better is going to change her risk of postpartum hemorrhage. So I don't think this study was large enough to answer the question about whether or not these rare things like postpartum hemorrhage, relatively rare, were actually different. And there's not, again, like a biologic reason why you would think that. They also found that the tighter control group had more patients with preeclampsia and more use of pharmacologic treatments for diabetes. And as you might expect, they needed more insulin or metformin or some treatment to get the tighter control. But this study was not powered appropriately to really determine whether those differences were meaningful. So, you know, yes, if you want tighter control, you're going to have to use more medications. I just don't know how postpartum hemorrhage happens. And all of these events were rare enough that it was really underpowered to make those determinations. Yeah, it doesn't really 
make physiologic sense and they don't really offer an explanation for how like either using higher doses of metformin or insulin or just by diet alone keeping a lower sugar like how would that possibly translate to higher risk of hemorrhage or preeclampsia so whether or not that could even be a real finding because they were underpowered for that it they still tried to say that there was some apparent reduction in bad outcomes for the babies they tried to say there was a yeah, increase in no, cost that's to right. the mom. So what was that yeah. finding? Yeah, I haven't explained that. And just for the folks brushing up on their statistics, a lot of studies, you know, it's easy sometimes to calculate like the type 1 error rate, but these sort of rare events that you say, you know, have differences, the, the problem is the type 2 error rate comes into play with some of these too. And a lot of studies like this, the type 2 error rate is probably well over 50% as they get underpowered. So hard to draw conclusions. But but yeah, they had a, for the newborns, they had a composite outcome of death and birth trauma as well as shoulder dystocia in the two groups. And, and as I said, it was not statistically significant. But when they did some adjustments, so this is how you get your way into a good p-value. They did some adjustments for maternal BMI and ethnicity and a previous history of gestational diabetes. And after choosing those three things arbitrarily without explanation, and after adjusting, they found a marginal p-value in the difference in the composite outcome. And that p-value was 0.032. So this is where I feel like they just played around with the statistics in the spreadsheet, you know, and and I think it's probably honestly why it's in PLOS Medicine rather than one of our premier journals, because this just looks like p-hacking to try to find some constellation of adjustments that result in some p-value under 0.05. And they did couch the results and say that these were, you know, they were very tentative in the way they worded their finding. I mean, I think they know that this is a at best a marginal thing. And again, without going too much into p-hacking and all that, th- these are the problems with what we call researcher degrees of freedom in terms of like which factors they choose to adjust for and why, and also how you select a threshold for statistical significance in subgroups that have multiple comparators. And in a study like this, that that was probably inappropriately powered to look at those specific analyte points anyway. So all that's more discussion than we need to do. But when you look at that and do those sort of analysis, then I don't think it is a valid conclusion that they can say that tighter glycemic control group improved any neonatal outcomes or worsened any maternal health outcomes. I think it just found no differences. And that's what their original intended analysis concluded. There's just no difference. So I think that's the takeaway from this data is that it just doesn't make a difference. Well, at least it adds to the evidence that we really shouldn't be arbitrarily lowering the glycemic controls for our patients. I don't know if they're trying to say like, well, if they're a certain BMI and they had prior diabetes and they're a certain ethnicity, then you can lower the... Yeah, essentially. But even, of course, if you wanted to do that, the subgroup analysis, what they should really do is inform another study. Yeah. So they're welcome to do that study in said subgroups and achieve sufficient numbers for enrollment, but we should not change our practice based upon a subgroup analysis. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll agree with that. So a- another thing that we've talked a lot about, especially over the past year, is delayed cord clamping. You m- just mentioned it earlier today. And one of the things we discussed in our episode previously about that was the potential role of milking the cord. That's actually the official term. I still think it sounds funny, but basically... Have you ever ever milked a cow? No, I never We got to get you down to the south. Can't wait. But so basically like squeezing 
the blood, squeezing the cord and like pushing the blood towards the baby. If it's a non-vigorous infant that you need to get them really quickly over to the warmer, you don't have a full minute and you don't want to delay resuscitation, but you still want to give them that extra blood. So we talked about that being an unanswered question in at least in term and near-term pregnancies, we do know that it is harmful in newborns under 32 weeks. Really, the more preterm they are, I think that at least the hypothesized mechanism for this is that their blood vessels and all of their tissues are more delicate. And so if you're forcing a whole cord's length of arterial and venous blood rapidly at the same time into their bodies, it can cause those vessels to rupture, which is a really bad thing. But it's not necessarily the case in term or even late preterm babies. So there is a new study. It was in the August 12th Gray Journal that looks at this question. They had over 16,000 births in this multi-center trial. And of those, they had 1,780 newborns who met criteria for enrollment. And they received either the milking of the cord, like the rapid pushing the blood, or just early cord clamp and cut without any extra milking or anything. And this was all because they were non-vigorous. So it was 1,780 non-vigorous newborns out of these 16,000 births they were studying. They found that milking the cord did not reduce NICU admission rates, though the children who received it did have higher hemoglobins and needed less cardiorespiratory support and had a lower incidence of moderate to severe HIE and were less likely to need therapeutic cooling. So they concluded that milking the cord may be feasible and safe and actually superior to just clamping and cutting the cord early. And of course, again, only for later gestations, term or near term. You really don't like the word milking. I can't, you know, I can't describe. You, some people don't like the word moist. Yeah. What other word could we use? I don't know. Pushing, squeezing. <laughs> I don't know. It's all a little bit crude, no matter no matter what you we'll say. We'll work on another term. Yeah. If, if people have a suggestion for a better term, <laughs> just email it to us. Okay. Well, yeah, this is really the first trial to address this particular sort of sub-issue in the world of optimal cord clamping. But I think we need to remember that delayed cord clamping for a full minute is what's best if you have a newborn who needs resuscitation at 30 seconds and you don't have that full minute and you don't need to delay the resuscitation either. So I think this is enough. We have enough evidence to convince me at least that in newborns who are more than 35 weeks, we should start milking in situations where early cord clamping is necessary because of the need for resuscitation. And I emphasize that too, because people should not interpret this as, oh, I can just do the milking instead of waiting. No, you're, you wait first. And then if the situation, which hopefully is rare, arises that you can't wait 60 seconds, then you could do that. I think we mentioned earlier the example of intrapartum infection or something like that as being a risk for things like cerebral palsy. But another question that comes up is whether or not maternal infections during pregnancy would increase the risk of autism and other intellectual disabilities in children. So I have a paper here that was published September 7th in The Lancet, which helps to answer that question. This was a study done in Sweden 
and a retrospective analysis of nearly 650,000 children living in Stockholm County. In the raw data, the children who had been diagnosed with intellectual disabilities or autism were found to have more likely been exposed to maternal infection during the pregnancy. But they also found that the children with autism were more likely to have been born to a mother who had an infection in the year prior to the pregnancy, although they didn't find that same correlation for intellectual disabilities. Now, one of the reasons why that fact is important is that they wanted to determine if there was more to this than just an association, this association of infection and autism or intellectual disabilities. So they thought that looking at the presence of infection in the mother during the year before could also help to establish causality. In other words, it's hard to speculate how a maternal infection would increase the risk of autism in the child if the infection didn't occur while she was pregnant. Maybe there's something genetic or environmental or something else going on that predisposes the woman both to an increased risk of infection as well as an increased risk of having a child with autism. So if a causal relationship were to be established, then you wouldn't expect to see the correlation with infections prior to pregnancy, but that's exactly what they found. So they actually concluded that although infections in pregnant women are associated with both autism and intellectual disability in their children, the association with autism does not appear to reflect a causal relationship, but it's more likely to be explained by factors shared between family members such as genetic variation or aspects of the shared environment. That's a quote. So I like the approach they took in this study. You can see how easy it could have been just to look at the data and conclude that maternal infection causes autism. And unfortunately, this is the sort of thing that's happening all the time with a lot, of shot, a lot of shoddy research without any real effort in the research to determine or discuss causality. So, for example, think what we're seeing now with Tylenol and autism, for example. Associations, but no, no work to establish causality. So good for the Swedes. So they didn't find any association between maternal infection before pregnancy and the intellectual disabilities, just with autism, but not with that. Yeah, they only found that sort of negating finding with the autism group, not the general intellectual disability group. Yeah, so then that leaves still open the potential causal relationship for maternal infection during pregnancy, and then the baby having subsequent intellectual disabilities. And that, I think, is compatible with our current understanding we, we can understand why there might be a causal relationship. We know there's, you know, there, with an infection, there's probably inflammation that can affect the fetal brain in different ways, de- depending on where they're at in development. The pathogen itself could have some specific effects on the brain too, depending on what it is. So sometimes when a child has an intellectual disability, that obstetrician might even be blamed for that occurring if it's an intrapartum infection, even if it might have actually been an infection early in pregnancy. So I think that lends a little credence to the approach that these authors used in attempting to look for a causal link. It doesn't guarantee that there really is a causal link between infection and intellectual disability. It doesn't exclude that either the way they were able to show that it probably is excluded in autism. Yeah, I think that's an important point to make. And it's something at every journal club, when you look at any paper, you know, you're reading a paper, you should always think about the difference between correlation and causation and how much work it takes to establish causation. I think mistaking correlation for causation is just rampant in science, but particularly in health sciences. In my new book, you know, I talk about how to examine correlations and define potential causal links. But I will say that 
almost nothing that you find statistically that's correlated ends up having a causal relationship. And you just have to keep that in mind when you read things, particularly things like retrospective population-based studies that correlate two variables together, but have really poor controls, particularly for hidden and lurking variables. But people see those associations in studies like that, and then they assume that there's a causal link between them, especially if in somehow in their mind, it makes sense that there should be one. So again, think Tylenol and autism or something like that. But that kind of data just cannot be used to inform causality. All right. Well, let's look at the current issue of the Green Journal, the October 2022. There's several interesting things in there. We'll at least point out a couple of them. The first one I want to bring up is a randomized controlled trial that compared weight-based Lovenox to fixed-dose Lovenox for a DVT prophylaxis after cesarean. So they randomized 146 women who met their criteria for needing prophylaxis to one of the two dosing groups. And their outcome, that their primary outcome that they looked at was anti-10A levels. And they determined that the women who received weight-based Lovenox were more likely to have an optimal peak anti-10A level. And I think that just makes common sense that if you give more Lovenox to people, then they're going to have higher anti-10A levels. But I don't think that that necessarily means we should all run out and do this weight-based dosing. This is another interesting thing to me about assessing trials. And here, in this case, they use the anti-10A level as a surrogate marker. It's easy to measure. It's, you know, quick study that you can do. But first, we need to validate that the surrogate marker corresponds to outcomes of interest. And we don't have that in this study. In other words, we're assuming that having this higher level of the anti-10A will result in fewer thromboembolisms or things like that that we care about in the reason why we're doing the anticoagulation. But actually, if you look in this study, neither group in the study had a thromboembolism of any sort. And in theory, this was among of women who were among a group of women who were pre-selected for their high risk factors for developing a VTE after cesarean. So both approaches to Lovenox administration yielded no thromboembolic events. But in the group with standard dosing, there were also no hematomas and no wound infections. But in the group with weight-based dosing, there were three hematomas and two of those were resulted in a wound infection. So there's always a consequence of more bleeding when you give more anticoagulation. And that's a concern after any surgery. So I think it's safe to blame the hematomas and the wound infections on the higher dose of anticoagulation. Yeah, unfortunately, they don't really address the balance between risks and benefits in this study when they actually call for using the weight-based strategy. But when you look at the patients who received the weight-based strategy, they had a net, they had net harm from it. So I think the word effective that they're using here is relative because sure, they had higher markers of the surrogate outcome, but their actual clinical outcomes were not any better and were in fact worse. So they did bemoan the fact that professional organizations are still only recommending the standard dosing. And I'm just not sure that anyone should change their current practice based on, especially not based on this study alone. Yeah, if there were, they could certainly do a larger study and, you know, one that was sufficiently powerful to see whether or not the DVT could be prevented. But that study might also find higher rates of return to the OR with hemorrhages or 
intraperitoneal hematomas that result in perineal abscesses or patients who fall and hit their heads, you know, like there's a lot of other things they might find too. So again, changing our practice based upon this one study that's insufficient to answer the question and only showed net harm to the patient, I think is not what we should be doing. There was another study in the same edition that looked at the risk for readmission in discharge obstetric patients who had hypertension. So these were women who delivered and they were sent home, but they needed some medicine for hypertension and they were either sent home on nifedipine or labetalol. And the question was, which group were more likely to be readmitted before their six weeks postpartum visit due to poorly controlled blood pressures? So this was a cohort study that retrospectively looked at women over an 11-year time period. And they concluded that women who were discharged home on labetalol were more likely to be readmitted than those who were discharged home on nifedipine. Well, that probably makes sense. It's typically once daily dosing for nifedipine. I think some places will default to twice daily, but... The dosing is written as once daily on the packaging, whereas with labetalol, it's almost always you start at two or three times a day. So it's obviously going to be easier to do just a once daily of nifedipine than twice or three times a day for labetalol. And it probably is just a better, just a more effective treatment for hypertension. So a lot of places already use it as first line. And yeah, I think that's what we should be doing in this this study just helps confirm that. Well, yeah, that's what I do in my practice. So I'm glad to see a study that supports what I do because I like it when my confirmation bias is fulfilled. All right. Well, at least you're honest. I'm recognizing my bias. Well, that's just great. <laughs> okay. Well, but there's also a fantastic article in this edition that you need to look at that's part of the Clinical Expert series of articles. This one's about recognizing, diagnosing, and managing dermatoses of pregnancy. And most of these clinical expert series articles are fantastic anyway, well worth reading. But this one addresses an issue that I think a lot of us just don't do very well. I see way too many OBs who call sort of every dermatoses of uh, every dermatosis of pregnancy, they call it pups. But the article does a really good job of, of dealing with this topic. So if you're going to read one thing this month in the Green Journal, it should probably be that article. And it, it's hard to do it justice on a podcast. Yeah, I saw it too. It has a lot of pictures. And I know you like articles with pictures. Well, don't we all? I, and I think you really just can't talk about Durham. We can't describe the pictures for yeah. you. So please just read the Yeah, article. exactly. So I also thought there was an interesting article now switching back to this month's Gray Journal. They were looking at the metabolomic profile of 5,649 users and non-users of the basically the Mirena IUD, the 52 milligram levonorgestrel IUD. Wait a minute. Is this the study that was done in Finland? Well, yeah. What a coincidence, huh? I almost didn't notice that. Really? You didn't read? Can you read the authors to me? Okay. The primary author was Elena Toffo, which that, I don't know if that's a traditional Finnish last name. It may be, but doesn't sound like it. The lead author was Yari Hauka, and well, there were several authors. There's Oskari Heikinheimo, Pekka Josilahti, and Timo Partonen were a few. Okay, okay. I made my point. The article's from Finland. That's why you picked it. But go ahead. What I need to know from you, though, is what is metabolomic? Metabolomics. Metabolomics. <laughs> metabolomics. Um, metabolomics, maybe? Metabolomics? I don't know. Tomato, tomato. Sure. Well, however you pronounce it, it's the study of small molecules that we would call metabolites or, you know, byproducts 
of biochemical processes and they're within cells, fluids, tissues, organisms. So they're studied on a large scale and collectively they're whatever the molecules that are studied and their interactions within a biological system are. That's known as the metabolome. Okay, thank you, Google. Metabolome. Well, Wikipedia, actually. Ooh, Wikipedia. (laughs) Well, okay, so in this study, they measured 211 different metabolites in women and what their levels were with and without these IUDs over time. And they found that 141 of these molecules were found in different levels between users and non-users. So some examples of these were that users had lower levels of certain lipoproteins, triglycerides, cholesterol derivatives, fatty acids, and aromatic amino acids. And the the differences were not dependent on length of use, but they basically equalized again after the IUD users had their IUDs removed. So does that mean anything, or is this just we're reading it because it was done in Finland? Well, the changes they observed, the you know the specific metabolites and the levels they looked at, have been previously associated with risk of cardiometabolic disease. So if it means anything, it could mean that using the IUD is cardioprotective, but we haven't quite seen this in other data sets yet. But it certainly sets the stage for some further, like, very specific type of studies. They, again, would be surrogate markers. But I do think it's interesting because patients do come in all the time wondering what effect the hormone has in their body. So if anything, I could say it has it potentially is cardioprotective. Yeah. I mean, I think the Finns do great research. I always want to read their papers just for that reason, not for any other reason. <laughs> I, I see. Well, all right. What else we got? Have you, I was curious, have you gotten any new feedback from any listeners? Oh, I did actually this weekend. I heard from someone who said that he enjoys when he hears your baby make noise on the podcast. And I think it somehow humanizes you and makes you a relatable person. But I told him it was just a sound effect that we put in there to convince people that you were human. Yeah, because, you know, otherwise I'm not really relatable. But this is quite a expensive sound effect. Requires a lot of diaper changes and feeds and stuff. But at least he's cute. Took nine months to make, too. Yeah. I understand he also likes to shake up your carbonated beverages for you. Yeah, because every beverage I own now doubles as a stacking block. Ah. If he gets access to it. And I guess he just wants his mom to have some excitement whenever I open a can of Dr. Pepper. (laughs) Well, I did invite him on our podcast, and so he's going to be on in a little bit and as a guest, and we're going to discuss abnormal uterine bleeding and the FIGO criteria for that, which I've always really enjoyed. I think it's just a really useful tool, so we'll look forward to having him on as a guest. That'll be great. Maybe he can hold the baby. He would probably really like that. So I just thought of a new term. Instead of milking the cord, All right. expressing. Oh, yeah, that kind of even sounds good. All right. Well, let's quit on that high note. And yeah, we'll be back in two weeks. I don't know when we'll have our fun listener on, maybe that time or maybe a different time, but we'll have links to to the articles and stuff we discussed today on thinkingaboutobgyn.com. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thinkingaboutobgyn.com. 
Be sure to subscribe. Look for new episodes every two weeks. 